of the bilge pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off. Oh, you're recording us. Right then. So, start off. Hello and welcome to Bilge Pumps AB5. This is a sort of continuation of looking around Ukraine rather than at Ukraine. But I'm also going to make a couple of announcements. One, I'm going to apologise because Bilge Pumps 84 was very much delayed last week. Um, I have we, we a student at one of the universities I teach at, um, actually the same university I teach at with my sister, and who's also was taught by my sister, unfortunately committed suicide. Um, but that that leads to all sorts of things, which meant that I got very very busy Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. And, and it just delayed the upload, and I do apologise to everyone for that. That's on me. I'm sorry. Um, so, uh, also, we have other news in that Jamie is not part of today's show because he is still suffering the effects of having had COVID, which is making him very, very tired and even more angry. Uh, I will say this. There, there is there are ideas for various episodes coming through from him, which are possibly going to involve me and Drac just sitting there quietly while he rants. Um, we, of course, wish him all the best. Hope he gets well soon and are looking forward to those episodes. And today we are joined by the wonderful Sal. It is Sal Merkeargus. It is Drac Innefell and it is myself, Dr. Alex Clark. And we are discussing... Well, basically all the stuff which you're not going to see, because it's not the sexy side of any conflict, but it's actually what's going on which needs to be talked about, i.e. the blockade and the merchant sea impacts and the international maritime law impacts of what's going on in Ukraine. Because guess what? This is the disturbing fact I'm going to start you, uh, you off with, and this will probably start Drak and Sal off for the next 40 minutes, so all I'll be able to do is sit here and pat my dog. Quite literally, the fluffy research assistant is sitting next to me. The vast majority of international maritime law is uncodified. The vast, vast majority of it is not even existent yet. International maritime law is 97% based on precedent. So when something happens, it sets a precedent, especially if it goes unchallenged. Less than 3% of international maritime law is actual codified, i.e. written down, treaties agreed, stuff which, uh, which there is a national, international standard. The rest of it is all based on precedent. And the vast majority of that precedent isn't considered unwritten yet, or not even thought about yet, because it has yet to be set by people doing things and then going unchallenged. So therefore the blockade that Russia is enforcing, informal or not, formal, undeclared on Ukraine, is precedent setting. And if that shocks anyone, I'm sorry, but that is the reality of trying to get international law through multiple UN committees and all the other joys you have of actually the uh, actually international agreements. So, gentlemen, that's where we start. I think you uh, summarized the uh, situation of the blockade uh, uh, very aptly. Uh, I think it is a topic that's not being looked at in almost any way whatsoever for obvious reasons. I mean, when you're, when you're bombing and, and, and blitzkrieging your way across Ukraine, you know, what's going on in the black sea doesn't get a lot of attention. Black sea didn't get a lot of attention during uh, world war two. 
uh, yet I would argue it was a fairly strategic area to uh, to watch. Uh, I do think that what both the Russians and the Ukrainians are doing in the Black Sea is of particular note. I, I mean, right off the very bat, we saw that Ukraine would very quickly initiate protections of their coast. I mean, they initiated a mining campaign. They, they basically held the ships in their port and obviously got themselves into a very strong defensive position along the coast. They realized, of course, their vulnerability. And, and that includes very quickly sinking their own flagship and, and preventing it from falling into enemy hands. But I also think one of the things that, that hasn't been reported very well is the fact that the Ukrainians were able to close off the Sea of Azov to the Russians. I, I mean, there was no movement at all by the Russian commercial forces and even limited military forces through that sea, because as long as the uh, Ukrainians held Mariupol and very early in the war, they're able to strike two Russian commercial vessels and, you know, Rostov on the Don, that's a major port for them. Uh, that's a huge export area for grain, for fertilizer. Uh, they were able to hold up Russian forces there for at least two weeks. Now we're just starting to see movement happen along the coast. Meanwhile, the Russians have executed, I would argue, a pretty good, solid naval campaign. I know there's a lot of criticism that the Russian Navy has been hit by, you know, a multiple launch rocket system and, and they've, they've taken some hits. But if you look at, you know, what the U.S. Navy identifies for its four missions, the Russians seem to be doing it really well. I mean, they have strategic deterrence. Look at their force in the Mediterranean. They've tied down basically the NATO force there to keep an eye on them in the central and eastern Mediterranean. They've exerted sea control. They can, there's no doubt. I mean, no one's really challenging them in the northern Black Sea. Projection of power ashore. They just did a bombardment off the southern coast of Odessa, hitting an anti-aircraft position in that region. So, and, and, and again, they're flying caliber missiles off their craft uh, and, and they're providing naval presence. They're providing that naval presence. I think, I think while... You know, everyone keeps wanting to talk about Russia staging, you know, saving Private Ryan first 30 minutes amphibious scene. That's not what Russian naval doctrine is. They're, they're not Marines. They're naval infantry. And more importantly, they're doing kind of very similar to what the allies did in the first Persian Gulf War with their amphibious forces. They're tying down troops. You, you can't leave Odessa undefended. Uh, you got to keep forces in Mikhailov. You, you can't just sit there and allow. Uh, the Russians to roam unchecked up and down the coast. And I, I think one of the key things there is, is that the Russians have basically shut any potential off for Ukraine. That's economic disaster for the Ukrainians. I, I mean, we keep talking about what's this impact, I, you know, in the United States, we keep hearing this, you know, what, why, why should we care about this? And again, when 10% of the world's grain is not coming out anytime soon, when, when you have issues it's with... It's more than 10% when you think about also, as you point out, the Russian trade has been impacted. Right. And the Russian uh, grain. And let's be honest, grain is not one of those things which lasts forever. It goes off. You don't want to store it in... In the temporary storage situations they tend to have for loading and unloading ships in ports, where it's supposed to be loading quite quickly, that's not really what you want to stuff in. No. And then, you know, especially where this food is was heading to. I mean, we're talking about North Africa. We're talking about the Middle East. We're talking about South Asia, not exactly areas that have a huge power block to to affect world global trade in many ways. 
And so, again, the unintended consequences we're seeing here from this conflict in terms of that blockade. And, and to me, the one issue that really I keep coming back to is prior to this conflict, there was a lot of presence missions by NATO and other allied navies up on the Black Sea. Now there's almost no visibility at all. I mean, you still have three NATO members up there. I assume the Romanians, the Bulgarians and Turks are doing operations. But you even had a case where the Russians went into uh, Bulgarian territorial waters and seized a vessel and pulled it out of their territorial waters. So you had territorial waters being broken. You've had ownership of, of, of NATO vessels attacked. Uh, you had an Estonian owned vessel sunk, probably used as a platform by the Russians for uh, anti-mining operations or surveillance of the Gulf of Odessa. So again, we're seeing a huge, and not to mention the fact, 100 vessels at least stuck in Ukrainian ports, uh, several vessels being hit, including one Bangladesh vessel being struck on the bridge uh, off the port of Alvia, where the uh, one of the engineers on board were killed. So I, again, I, you know, the, the, the Russians seem to be uh, using their sea control in a way. And again, they're doing it with platforms that are either new and small or old and big, but but they're still being effective with it. And, and I think that's that's the part that really amazes me that we're not seeing a lot of attention to. Well, this is the old point about old and big platforms. If it's a big platform, it tends to be able to be upgraded. Whereas old and small, you can't really upgrade. But old and big, as long as you maintain it, you can upgrade it if you're prepared to spend the money. Right. And I mean, what, what are we seeing? We're seeing the, the three Slavas getting the, the most attention. And uh, of them, two are in the med, one's, one's in the Black Sea. And then you see their smaller vessels, again, being able to go in, fire off caliber missiles, use them to uh, shore bombard, come back into Sevastopol, resupply, and then head back out again. And, and, and also and, um, one of their big, uh, one of their really big um, Kirovs. Oh, which one is it? Is it Peter? Is it, uh, is it uh, Peter Veliki? It could well be Peter Veliki. Is in the North Atlantic, of course, keeping NATO occupied up there because you have to. It, it's going to sound. Uh, this might sound strange to some viewers, especially those who haven't really listened to Bill Trump that much before. You can't ignore something with that many missiles wandering around. You can't. As much as you might want to, you might consider it not that point, but you can't ignore it. You have to. You have to watch it. Yeah, well, I think also from a legislative-legal perspective, for whatever that's worth these days, the whole situation is in a very difficult grey area, um, which it kind of comes back to what you were saying, Dr. Clark, about the fact that international law is mostly made up of precedents, feelings, and a bunch of self-contradictory um, conventions, a lot of which don't actually make the blindest bit of sense. By the way, <laughs> for anyone wondering, this is why historians are usually actually employed in a lot of universities to teach international and maritime law, because mm. most of it is actually history, not law. Yeah, and, and unfortunately, a lot of so-called international law tends to be whatever the collective most powerful group of nations happens to say it is at the time, which is why no yep. one can ever point to, you know, in, according to international law, you know, statute 64, volume seven, paragraph three, this is illegal. People just kind of make vague hand gestures about this is against international law. It's like, which one? 
the the main reason I'm bringing that up is because when it comes to blockades, which is effectively what we're we're talking about here, um, we're in this rather weird situation where to be an official blockade with a published list of contraband and so on and so forth, um, you need to have the UN Security Council ratify the blockade. And uh, do you think that's going to happen in any conflict that involves one of the five people who are sitting on the UN Security Council or their close allies? So, um, yeah, it, obviously, if and Russia... to be fair, the nation which has inflicted the most blockades on people is one of those United States, United Nations Security Council members mm-hmm. and has a long history of just putting in blockades whenever the frick it felt like, which is used as precedent quite often mm-hmm. uh, by various nations when they want to submit it. And that, of course, nation is good old Great Britain. Mm-hmm. And so yes, you... everyone, legacy of us. So we're in this weird situation where everyone knows it's a blockade. You know, it, it, it walks like a blockade. It talks like a blockade. It sounds like a blockade, but officially it isn't a blockade because if it was a blockade, we'd have to take it. Well, A, a blockade is technically yet something you can only do during an act of war. And Russia is insisting it's not a war. It's a special military operation, much the same way that the uh, German U-boat campaign in World War One was a special military zone around the UK. Um, and uh, yeah, it's... For those wondering, yes, history doesn't tend to repeat, but if you look very closely, it certainly rhymes. If um, so, yeah, I, I mean, let, let's face it, we all know if the Russians took the took the situation to the UN Security Council and said we want an official blockade declared in the Black Sea, um, China would probably vote for it or possibly abstain. The UK, France, and US would vote against it, and nothing would happen. And then everyone would be jumping up and down saying it's an illegal blockade. So everyone's kind of just circumvented that bit and just quietly ignore, ignoring or pretending to ignore what's going on. Uh, right up until I predict, as Sal was pointing out, in maybe, what's harvest time, June? Six months mm-hmm. or so? No, th- no, June's three months away. Yeah, three, four months away when um, all the grain doesn't go out and then all the grain prices go up. And this kind of, again, plays into what Sal was saying about why does it, why does it bother us, whether that be Americans or British or Australians or whoever. It bothers us because although that grain might not be exported to the UK or the US or Australia, it lessens the global supply. So if those countries in North Africa or Central Africa or Asia aren't getting their grain from Ukraine or Russia, they're going to have to order it from somewhere else. And that might be from somewhere that we get our supplies from. And that means if there's more demand on a limited supply, the prices will go up. And then if anything, if we've learned anything from the COVID pandemic, the minute that, I don't know, a box of pasta goes up from 74p to a pound in Asda, everyone will panic by, the shelves will be stripped, the prices will go skyrocketing, even though there's probably actually enough to keep everybody fed. Pasta will become five pounds an item, people will be stabbing each other in the aisles to get hold of it. And don't I think... told you not to go to Asda that day. Why <laughs> did you put yourself through that trauma? Pearly Tesco is worse. Um, but uh, if you... Why would you go into that war zone? Why? I don't know. It's interesting sometimes to see some of the inhabitants. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I mean, in all seriousness, you know, once the once the grain prices go up, people forget how many things are based around grain. It's not just pasta, it's bread. Very simple staple. Most people eat it. It's also beer. Mm-hmm. You want to see your beer prices go even higher? And I don't think the government's going to slack off the alcohol duty. 
<laughs> anytime um, soon. Um, the thing is, also, there is grain-based petrol, mm-hmm. and some of the additives which are added into petrol come from as if, grain. As if the fuel prices didn't need going up enough already. Um, and it, it, it's... The thing is, though, and um, I would point this out, even if they are ha- don't have a blockade by June for some reason, let's say the Russian the war effort has completely collapsed or something, the fact is there isn't going to be much grain coming out of Ukraine and probably not much out of southern Russia, considering what's been going on them, because mm. quite a lot of the fields in southern Russia have had tank- their own tanks running across them, which is not good for growing grain. And then the grain in Ukraine, well, the farmers, instead of concentrating the grain, have been, well... Doing dealing with a new crop, which is called Russian armored vehicles that have broken down. Mm. It's a, it's a, it's a. I'm, I'm, I'm told it's a wonder crop as far as the Ukrainian farmers are concerned, but it's not going to feed anyone grain. Mm. And there's the occupied and contested areas where they just physically can't work anyway. Yes. Um. And and don't think if if for those. And there's are... the fact that Russians are now also targeting farming equipment because mm. aforementioned farming equipment keeps being used to nick mm. their broken down vehicles. I was going to say every, every tractor in uh, Ukraine right now is towing a T seventy two. So yeah. I mean, it's just like it's, there's there's a lot of use for it on the field. I mean, I, I've got a nice gate guardian spot, and I know an airsoft site that has a an armored fleet. So I'm hoping some cheap eBay discounts soon. Um. I think there's one on there for about $48,000, if you fancy it. Well, you know, greater supply, so we'll drop prices. But uh, in all seriousness, you know, apart from the bread, the beer, the pasta, etc., if if you're into, like, rice or potatoes or quinoa or something like that, one, don't be into quinoa. You're starving out a lot of very poor farmers in South America. Slap. Um, It's not that much greater for... Yeah, I kind of like it, but you know, I'd rather I'd rather I'd rather some Bolivian relatives of mine got to buy it at somewhat affordable prices, considering they live in a third world country, than um, some socialite in Kensington gets to pretend they're better than everyone else. But regardless of that, whatever you happen to eat that may not be grain uh, based, well, if everybody's buying all the grain and there's not enough grain to go around, what else do you think they're going to start buying? Well, all it, the staples. It, it, <laughs> Yeah, and and I, I agree with you entirely about the great rigatoni fight of 2022 looming on the horizon. <laughs> uh, I, I think I think it's a it, it, it's a definite potential. And, and you add to it again, again, just the normal supply chain issue we have. I, I mean, everything from Canadian Pacific going on strike right now to, you know, water uh, levels down in rivers in South America, making barge traffic div- difficult. And, and all this kind of plays into this where we need redundancy in our ability to get food supplies and everything. You know, I just read, uh, just finished reading uh, Nick Lambert's uh, a book on Gallipoli and, and, and how he related that to uh, the issue of not so much of knocking out the Ottomans in World War One and Constantinople, but as much as getting to the food sources in, 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 in Ukraine and, and having that as a, as a key strategic objective. And, and I think you're exactly right. I, I think food, uh, fertilizer, I'll add too. I mean, fertilizer is going to be another huge element coming out of there that's not going to come out of there that's going to impact farming, you know, maybe not this year, but next year when all of a sudden yields are not as high because you're not able to get as much fertilizer as you can. And and what gets me about this is, again, is, is the Russians are not being challenged on this blockade at all. There's no challenge to this. I mean, we, you have what's probably one of the, 
most visible humanitarian crisis right now in Mariupol. I mean, that city has been cut off. It's been held. You know, I, I think that city has done an amazing, there's an amazing story behind the city that most people aren't seeing. Again, they shut that sea of Azov off. They've been able to hold out, but you don't have anyone sitting there saying, you know what, we're going to run a relief ship in. We're going to do something. You know, it's like, there's still open waters. I mean, you have not declared a blockade. The NATO has declared it a high risk area. Insurance but is through the roof. To run a relief ship through, you would need to surround it with Arlie Burks, Daring's Type Twenty Threes, which NATO's uh, not going to do. You would need a probably to actually send one of the British carriers in with F thirty five Bs, because if you sent it, you you wouldn't send a US carrier into there. And F thirty five B is the only thing you can probably park enough of in deck parking that you don't have to have flying over, but you can have take off quick enough to get up there and actually do something if you need to, if you need to, because it will be deck parked. It won't be a flown cap. Yeah, the- it, it just, it's to do, actually do that would be a major military commitment. And the moment you're certainly putting in that much military force, you pretty much are declaring war on Russia or as well, far as they're going to be concerned. And, and you've got the, you've got the added problem of the, at the moment, Turkey using the Montreux convention has decided that Russia, that all those Russian warships in the Mediterranean can't move into the black sea. But the Montreux Convention also contains a number of other clauses, including tonnage and num- numerical limitations on the number of non-Black Sea resident warships that can go into the Black Sea. So you, you're in a catch-22. If you send mm-hmm. some kind of relief ship through, it's either going to get boarded and taken by the Russians, in which case the Russian troops will say thank you very much for the nice food. Um or if you send enough military force to escort your relief convoy, you're breaking the Montreux Convention, at which point the Russians can turn around and say, well, if you're breaking it, then we're sending our stuff from the Mediterranean through as well and try and stop us. The only um, other option you can do, and this might sound strange, is how does America feel about handing over a load of Flight 1 Ali Burks to Bulgaria and Romania? <laughs> I, I said something about that the other day. I, I said something about that the other day. It almost makes us wish we had some sort of light destroyer of some kind to go through here. That we, <laughs> okay, do you really want to start us on the light destroyer discussion? <laughs> but, flags, of, but, flags of convenience, international warship edition. Hey, I, yeah. you know, I, I'm, I'm all for giving the flight, a couple of flight ones to the Ukrainian Navy. Let them go ahead and run them, you know, and then send them in and send them to their home ports and, and let it fly. Let's see what they do. I, I'm, I'm, now, I'm now just imagining a scene in, um, I'm just thinking, where, where have a lot of Ukrainian refugees gone? Maybe Warsaw? No, no, Warsaw's landlocked. Gdynia? There's a lot of Ukrainian refugees in Poland. I'm now just imagining, you know, a squadron of Ali Burke sailing into Gdynia and then the captain's just announcing... Surely for everyone, absolutely everyone, starting five minutes ago, leave the keys in the ignition and then just wandering off. And as they pass some suspiciously Slavic looking people in the dockyard, the captain's just like, hmm, yeah, just, just leave our ships alone. It'd be a terrible shame if something were to happen to them before disappearing to the nearest bar. So I, I just did a quick calculation. Uh, 4.5% of the world's mariners are Ukrainian. And then uh, there was a, a report that one out of seven of those want to return back home to fight. That makes 10,000 uh, uh, mariners ready to go, sailors ready to go. I think you can get out of 10,000, a couple of crews together, uh, bring them in the Ukrainian Navy and, and uh, give them a couple of, you know, the early flight ones and off you go. And then they can come steam, steaming out of the out of the Turkish Straits and, and challenge that blockade. Of course, if you want, if you want to, if you really want to play, um, you know, Operation Mindscrew, 
all those Russian <laughs> oligarch oligarchal yachts that have been seized. I, I, I listen. I've been I've been talking about privateering for for a long time now. I think those are the perfect privateering vessels, right you, you, there. Well, I'm just thinking use them use them as escorts because then yeah. the Russians are really in a catch twenty two. They're not armed, so they can't legitimately shoot them, claiming that they're warships. But they've got to get through them to get to the supply convoys. But if they do go through them, whether that be by blowing them up or ramming them or whatever, there's going to be a lot of very angry Russian billionaires. <laughs> You know, I, I've been I've been following one of my favorite Twitter accounts right now is Putin is a virus, and uh, he tracks uh, the uh, the yacht captures. So we're talking about so far two point four billion dollars worth of yachts have been captured. So I, I mean, we we have them. This, for some reason, the Spanish have been doing a great job. I, I mean, these are all sitting there in the med right now. They could be uh, taking. They're sitting in Spain waiting to fill up. Yeah. So I, I think that's you're... where the Russian Navy tends to fill up is Spain. Yep. They've been, so they're told they can't fill up there right now. So they're all they're all there in the Balearic Islands, right there, ready to go. So you know, they send the Ukrainians into Ibiza, have them a little bit of shore leave, and then off they go. Mm. I think we might also have solved our um our, our new royal yacht problem. I, there's plenty to choose from right here. There's, there's, yeah. there's, save, it's a shop the shopping list. Save the country two hundred fifty million quid. Where's the nearest Russian oligarch's yacht? Quick, quick uh, bit coat of paint, and we have HMS Britannia too. <laughs> Listen, I think if they uh, open uh, uh, again, if it's an open call on these yachts and everything mm. like that, we can grab a boat and get the H- HMS bilge pumps going here for our mm. own uh, uh, headquarters. Yeah, right there. we could. We, oh, that'd be fun. Although accept- there again, at the moment, mood Jamie's in, that could lead to some ramming incidents. We have to reinforce the bow. Well, there is, there is, uh, there is, oh, there, there is. It's the um, what I call the faux Zumwalt um, that parked up next to HMS belt. Belfast a little while ago. I'd ra- I'd I'd be rather partial to that one if anyone knows where it's gone. Which one's that? The uh... um, it is. Let me have a quick look. It is the one that is owned by Andre Melichen- Melin- Melnichenko. Melnichenko, I think. It's a white thing. It looks very much like a civilianized Zumwalt. Oh, oh, you're talking about a. That, 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 that's the that's the name of it. Yes. It's just a that's that's, mm. that's the one. Yes. Yeah, Motor the thing with a. the weird sails that looks. Yep. Yeah, she's out in. Uh, I think she was last reported out in the Maldives. All of them are heading for the Maldives right now. So heading heading right out there. So uh, let me throw again this this challenge of of the blockade because I, I think this war in particular creates another very interesting aspect, and that's the counter blockade against Russia which Mm. is being not formally done. I mean, you have the sanctions, you get the yacht sanctions. So everybody's out trying to hunt down yachts. So you get French and and Spanish governments. It's been seized by the Italians. The Italians have got yacht A. So Mm. the, uh, Mm. the, uh, uh, you have this, you have all the official sanctions being done, but then you have these corporate sanctions being done, which I think is really interesting right now. I've done the high visibility ones. Are the McDonald's and the and, and the uh, uh, Starbucks, but I think the bigger ones are the shipping companies. I, I mean, all of a sudden you had you know major shipping companies sit there and say we're not going to do trade with Russia anymore, including Maersk and uh, Mediterranean Shipping, Hop Hog, uh, ONE. All these large container companies sat there and said, "Listen, we're we're going to not do trade." And that's going to have massive economic impact on Russia, well, even though you only talk about Russia handles maybe about 3% of the world's container trade. You shut that off cold. 
Now, all of a sudden, not only does that cause disruptions across the entire global supply chain issue, because now all of a sudden, 3% of the containers aren't moving like they used to. But now, what does it mean for international corporations that they can just cut trade with a country they, all of a sudden? They do have a reason for that, because look what Russia's done to the air, uh, air yep. sort of the aircraft. And that's the thing. If you consider the amount of airplanes, etc., which have been seen, which aren't being returned and seized, etc., would you send in your multi, your hundred million pounds, billion pound ship to Russia at the moment? No, it's not. So it, it's a case of, in most way, if you behave like a pirate and you don't honour your commitments, then the company's not going to do that because whilst they'll suffer, they'll suffer far more if they lose that ship. Well, we're back into this legal gray area, aren't we? Because yeah. you, you could argue, you could, uh, I mean, it is, as you, as Sal said, it is kind of a blockade. The san- sanctions are basically a blockade, an economic blockade by any other word, but without having to go through the UN Security Council to get approval for it. And the same, and like the, the, some of the businesses, to be honest, some of the businesses' hands are being forced. You know, a lot of these businesses were perfectly happy to continue doing business with Russia, partly because of legal implications if they pulled out, partly because they actually, as most megacorps, don't actually care um, as long as they're making money until the sanctions brought in legal implications where the cost of defying the sanction was worse than the cost of continuing business in Russia. Uh, So... As I say, we're in this legal grey area again of are we blockading Russia or not? And because similar to what the Russians are doing to the to Ukraine, if the Russians are blockading Ukraine, then they're at war. If they're not, then what's going on? And if are we blockading Russia? If we are, then we're technically at war, which we apparently are doing everything to try and prevent. But if we're not blockading Russia, then what exactly are we doing? And does Russia consider it a blockade? I Mm. mean, do you consider the fact that Maersk has shut down your trade a action by Maersk or the Danish government? Because Maersk is a Danish corporation or Hophog, a German corporation or CMA, CGM, a French or ONE, a Japanese. It's a it's a very paper thin masquerade, isn't it? Because people can technically you can turn around and say, oh, yes, well, private corporation A has decided to not do business anymore with national entity B. And that's entirely within their own rights. You know, you can't force a commercial entity to do business with anybody. But. At the same time, would they have done that if their governments hadn't threatened them with other things if they didn't? <laughs> and, 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 and that's the problem that what happens if America says, well, yeah, if you're doing business there, well, we don't have to let you do business here. Mm. Well, and that, but that goes to the fundamental nature of what a blockade is. Is a blockade a military strategy or a political strategy? And I always go back to, uh, I go back to uh, the, the, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, when, uh, you know, McNamara has a very famous kind of confrontation in the Situation Room with Admiral Anderson, you know, talking about the blockade. And and basically the Navy's talking about the fact that, we, you know, we know how to run a blockade. We've done doing blockades forever. And, and, and McNamara tells him, it's like, no, this is different. This is this is this is how we're communicating between each other. Each action is not just a military action, but a political action where we're we, we are specifically dialoguing with Khrushchev in this and it and it seems to me again this is just my opinion but it seems to me that there is no real coordination on our efforts against the russians we just threw everything at the wall and and, and to, to use our uh, pasta metaphor a little further and see what sticks to the wall and 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 
that has ramifications. Again, it's one thing to go hunting after yachts. No one's going to, no one, you know, everyone's going to joke about the yachts right now. Again, I got to, you know, get this, the, the slide up with the kill sheet of yachts, you know, mm-hmm. and, and no one's going to hurt and cry when an oligarch doesn't have his yacht. However, if that pasta is not getting in the hands of the Russian citizens, then, you know, Russian citizens in the street not being, you know, being upset and hungry, you know, you know, R- Russian citizens upset, hungry and, you know, with a war going on, leads you to revolution and, you know, being masters of history like we are russian revolutions don't always go very well and and, and they really we well, really often, i'm not sure doesn't really go back quite badly for the other people looking on from the outside as well as the people inside well the other thing that a lot of people tend to forget is just because like well you know you have seen a lot of people on social media and that even on the news saying oh we want um we want there to be a, a revolution to depose putin and some even more frankly misguided idiots but then again it's gordon brown so that's a shorter version of saying the same thing um calling for a new nuremberg and it's just like whilst on principle you can agree or disagree with that the simple fact is nuremberg only happened because we physically occupied germany um if you start a new nuremberg when you haven't physically occupied russia all putin has to do is say i'm not going i'm staying in russia come and get me (laughs) <laughs> and then we're back to square one again also, at which point isn't that why we have the hague as well why do we need to start nuremberg when the hague exists and it's what what is set up for because politicians like brown like to grandstand and hear the sound of their own voice and it sounds nice no. because no no <laughs> it's a politician no no yeah and and to be honest i mean even with the hague what are they going to do you know much 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 seal uh, team I, six abduct putin drop him off i, I think the hey didn't, didn't the hey just come out and say there was war crimes but again it's, it's yeah like, you know well and, i mean it's going back to history you know much as i hate to sound sound like some rather nasty people from history how many divisions has the pope was the historical quote well how many divisions has the hague when it comes to um hauling people out of russia i mean look how long it took people look how long it took to get people out of flipping serbia um <laughs> After, I was going to say, and by the that. time they get them out, they die of natural causes. I mean, I mean so hmm. it's not like it, it 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 did a lot at the time. But the issue here, again, I keep coming back to this idea is is so you know I I did a video where I talked about the idea of the Ukrainians getting private privateers out there mm-hmm. and attacking, and you know, and I got I got hit by a lot of people by it, and it created a little bit of a stir, and including some people I greatly respect, you know, you know, BJ Armstrong over the Naval Academy sat there and said, you know, you can't do privateering, that won't work. Mm-hmm. But, I, you know, I think he was looking at historically 19th century privateering. I think 21st century privateering is a bit different. Again, you know, un- under UNCLOS, you know, it, it, you know, if, as long as you follow the articles of UNCLOS, you know, you follow Article 29 to be, you know, what basically identifies a warship is, is, actually not very a lot you know it, it's it's basically you know fly the ensign it, it, it's registered as, as as a warship of a country have it under the command of a, of a commissioned officer that's it you know and as long as you avoid all, all of article 101 <laughs> the piracy clause you're, you're kind of pretty good right there which again you know that was my issue is was if the ukrainians take over just a couple of you know vessels and send them out there what does that do for russia having to deal with the potential ukrainian you know, commercial, you know, ship slash private man of war that's out there now. And it requires them to divert assets because, again, they're waging this blockade, which is not. And, and I always argue too, a blockade isn't against one country. It's an international blockade because you're preventing other vessels from freely moving in and out of the port, which is exactly what's happened right now. You have vessels being abandoned in Ukraine. They can't get out. 
you have the cruise, the International Maritime Organization just the other day was talking about creating a blue highway to get these, these, these crews out. Uh, these vessels are being abandoned in the ports. They're being hit. And, you know, I'm not going to be surprised that if, if, if the Russians make a move on some of these ports, they're going to go ahead and sink some of these vessels in the port to prevent them from being usable in some cases. And not to mention the fact that the largest container ship in the Black Sea, a 9,000 box vessel is, is owned by China, is sitting there in Odessa right now. And, and I got to wonder what, what I would Russia's... not want to be a Russia if they hit that. I, that's my, my biggest question right now is what happens to that vessel, because I, they haven't come close to hitting the port of Odessa yet. And I don't know if that's a factor in this or not, but but I think if I was the, if I was the Ukrainians, I'm sorry, this is going to sound terrible. I'd be parking everything important next to that ship. Yeah, she, she's she's pierside be... right now in Odessa. She's been there the whole time, and and and, and again, she's. I think I've got an idea where the Ukrainian anti-ship missiles might be currently sitting, parked next to her. That's but, where but, I'd have them. Right, and and the Russians have been, you know, I, I think this this Gulf of uh, Odessa campaign that's been waged, you know, you know, you follow you follow H.I. Sutton and, and his his information, you know, you saw them coming in, steaming into the Gulf of Odessa the other day, and again, I think they're drawing forces. They're doing a good job. I mean, they have to. The Ukrainians have to tie down forces, you know, along that coast uh, where they could probably be somewhere else. I, I think the Navy's doing their exact job in this in this scenario for the Russians. And they're doing it well. But is this a difference, perhaps? There is worry, I think, in my mind, looking at it, that some people are going to perceive the Navy as the Russian Navy is having the same problems as perhaps the Russian army is having. And I don't think the Navy does have the same issues as the, I think they have their own issues. I do think that I don't think they're completely without issues, but I think they have a different set of issues than the army does. Well, I, I think. They, I think there's a fear that number one, the, the naval campaign didn't move as efficiently and fast as the army campaign. But again, we don't know what their timeline was. I would argue in both. And also, the army they case, could argue they were waiting on the army to actually turn up where it was supposed to, so they couldn't do anything. Right. Until the army it, got there. And, and the other element here is is yeah. I, I think the navy is doing things. We just saw the other day a convoy coming into a former Ukrainian port, the one just south of Mariupol that they took. Mm. You know, there's images of vessels coming in. I, I think the Russians had vessels loaded, ready to go. You know, I'm pretty sure they would have some supply vessels loaded with fuel, with with ammunition, with food, ready to go into those ports. Because, again, one of the things we've, we've seen is the effectiveness of the Ukrainians in taking out soft targets of the Russian army. Are they effective at taking out soft targets of the, of the Russian Navy? That's that's the big issue, because if you can start bringing in those supplies via the sea number one you're, you're not putting that constraint on on the highways uh you're bringing a heck of a lot more by boat than you ever will in, in in convoys we're starting to see the ukrainians blow rail lines and key bridges something they've been hesitant to do uh prior to this but again if if they can grab those ports then they can sustain those offensives a lot better uh we'll see if they go in for example on the drive to odessa if they can come into Alvia and, and those ports along the way there and, and bring their supplies in. I think that was the landing that was done probably by the Russian LSTs was, was not just troops, but supplies coming in. Uh, that to me would be the more interesting, almost like a, a, a logistics over the sea operation than a, a naval amphibious operation. I, I think that's the way they're using their LST. It seems to me to be the way that they're using their LSTs vice a amphibious assault. Well, I think, and I think the other thing that we generally 
um, have to bear in mind is that this whole thing is not the war that we have, we, as when I say we, I mean, generally people in the West, it's not the war that most people are used to seeing. Um, so you, we, we do have to be very careful about making assumptions about how well it's going or how it, or how it's not going. Um, because every war that we've seen as the West highly publicized, whether that be Gulf War One, Gulf War Two, the intervention in Kosovo, um, you know, um, even the opening stages of the Afghan campaign, etc., has all been massive disparity of force, massive buildup, often in the shape of months, massive air campaigns lasting weeks. Um, and then a final ground movement in, and then obviously with Iraq and Afghanistan, long-term counterinsurgency. But that's a very, very different conflict to what's going on between Russia and Ukraine. Um, whilst Ukraine militarily on paper is at a disadvantage against Russia, the balance of forces between Russia and Ukraine is a lot, 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 lot closer than it ever was between NATO and Serbia or NATO dash the UN and Iraq, etc. So this isn't going to be an overwhelming victory for one side or the other. It's not going to be uh, decisive and clear cut. It's going to be knockdown, drag out. You know, Russia has on on paper technical advantage, but they are the attacker. So Ukraine has the defensive advantage. So anything that happens, whether it be on land, on on the air, or at sea is going to be very drawn out and there's probably going to be losses on both sides. So, you know, we, 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 we have to bear that in mind when it comes to dealing with this. No, I think you're right. I mean, you really haven't seen, and, and I don't know if peer to peer is the right term to use here, but, but uh, comparable militaries fight each other. You're right. Every time it's been pretty, you know, lopsided. I mean, you know, in, in 2003, it's pretty sure we're going to get Baghdad. I didn't think that was an issue. It was really just a matter of when we were going to get, get in there and, and get to it. And, you know, going against, you know, other opposition where there's been very little ability, you know, whether it's Yugoslavia in the 90s, Libya in 2011, uh, not not a lot of comparable to it. But again, the naval side creates the unique problem, doesn't it? I mean, because, you know, when we talk about MiG-29s, for example, you talk about handing over MiG-29s to to them, you know, the issue was, well, we're going to fly them in from, you're going to bring, bring them in from Rammstein in there. How are you going to do that and, and, and how does it work? And, you know, the no fly zone issue keeps coming up. And again, you know, I heard some really interesting debates over the weekend. I was listening to one where they were talking about the fact that it's not technically a no fly zone because Ukraine owns it's their airspace. They can invite in whoever they want into the airspace. But international waters is international waters. Again, you can go out just a few miles, you know, 12 miles off the coast of Russia and Ukraine. And technically the middle of the Black Sea is international waters. And yet. Again, we're, we're allowing the Russians to operate in international waters in a war zone. I mean, they're operating as as, as a war fighting ability. And this is this, this is the problem I have. Again, I, at the same time we're seeing what's happening there, I'm watching freedom of navigation operations in the, the, the Taiwan Straits. You know, I, I'm watching, you know, Russian military forces sailing from the Pacific fleet. You know, is the Russian Pacific fleet heading to the Black Sea? Is that is are, are we watching the Shima in reverse here happening? Because I saw people talking about can Singapore shut the straits to these Russian vessels coming to which they can't, by the way. That's just they can't. 
you know, uh, will the Egyptians? Well, they could, the... but to do so, they'd have to use mines and missiles, right? And guns. Yeah, well, I, I mean, and basically sense. blow them the fly, uh, blow, blow them up, right? I mean, in a legal sense, which, by the way, too, would absolutely kill commerce going through the most heavily trafficked, you know, thoroughfare in the world. Good uh, way to cause a global economic breakdown, right? It's it, you know, it, it would cause but, more economic havoc than than again the the the, the fight for pasta in the local ASDA. The, the, the two places you can cause the most economic trouble in the world are one, Singapore Straits, two, the English Channel. Taiwan Straits, that will be no picnic either. But those two places are so many different trade networks flow through them and depend upon the trade going constantly that we don't even really think about it. This is the problem. So if you want to cause real trouble, you drop some mines into those straits and then watch everyone have a panic attack. Right. And it also raises the issue, too, about what nations Not do. that we're encouraging that, but, you know, no, Jamie but... is getting very upset with people. So if that turns out to be a stress reliever, we'll leave that to one side. But, you know, one of the things that, I, you know, I get in the discussion on Twitter all the time with Huntsman, we talk about this stuff. And one of the things that China is doing, for example, is this idea of stockpiling of being prepared for these economic kind of blockade coercion type deals. You know, there's a story not too long ago that off of uh, Qingdao, the Chinese have been taking old tankers and just anchoring them out there and loaded with fuel, just, stand, you know, just storage. You know, they're just, you know, prepositioning them. Uh, they've been buying food like crazy over the past couple of years and, and, and storing it. Uh, they've been, you know, when, when, the LNG, the liquefied natural gas, was cut off to Europe, and now all of a sudden we needed liquefied natural gas going to Europe for, for power plants. Uh, China released shipments going across, which raised concern for everybody. It's like, how is China releasing shipments? They're one of the biggest consumers of LNG in the world. And that's when you start realizing they have either stockpiles of it or alternative sources they're getting at this. And and I think you know if if Russia failed, you know I think I think the list of things that Russia has failed to do is is a long one coming into this conflict. But I think one of the big ones is not realizing the economic implications of this war. What can be done economically to sanction it? I can't imagine Putin envisioned the level of sanctions being leveled against him in any way. You know at 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 this kind of element. And again, I think it does cause pause and concern for other nations. What if, you know, what, what if, you know, Falklands War 2.0 happens and then all of a sudden a shipping company says, well, England, we, we, we can't support you in your conflict against Argentina and therefore we're going to stop hauling cargo to you. And even if it's just one company. I know company, what the British response will be to that. Hello, um, it appears that we currently now own all your stock. Right, because or that's seize, what we've done in the past to people who've done that and seize the vessels <laughs> in the port. Yeah. I won't even. I won't even. And now I won't even talk about. We, uh, we, uh, won't even talk about. No. Britain is not not are not nice people. No, not nice people in this sort of war. But it's actually I would turn that round because the trouble is it's it. Let's say it this way: if, it, if if for Britain, it has the options of doing that. But if they if it was Argentina, that could be serious trouble for them. Yep. Which, which would be, again, you know, cut off their trade. I mean, all of a sudden their yeah. exports can't come out. And, and, and again, it's that element of self-sanctioning where now international shipping corporations, international business has become literally an entity onto its own. 
and and they exert a foreign policy. I mean, we I I tend not to think that Maersk has a you know a State Department, but maybe they do. Maybe they need uh, you know the, the, this level because they're determining how things play out. I mean, look at what's happened in England. I mean, PO Ferries just announced the firing of their 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 UK crews and staff. Yeah. And everything, you know, and I, I did, you know, talked about this the other day. It's like, you know, the essential role that P&O ferries played in the first Falklands War. If you don't have Norland, if you don't have, uh, 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 you know, the ferries going down, that means you're not bringing, you know, the commandos. You're not bringing Fifth Brigade. You're not, you know, you don't have sufficient lift to bring those forces down. These ships have a, a you know, a national security element to them. And and now well, we're... Uh, yeah they, they, that's going to cause that's causing all sorts of fun because P and O were supposed to tell well basically these things they're a, supposed to have consulted their workers which they didn't so they disobeyed. I, I don't know what you mean they gave them there was a there was a video I saw the video they just um, sent them uh, a, no, a video saying to... you're fired you're uh, no, basically uh, all sorts of things and also they were supposed to tell the government as well because of those national security implications because you know the government has interests in P and O. So government. currently, PO is currently finding out that hang on, uh, we thought we could get away with this and we might not be able to. And I've heard there was even a, this is going to sound very strange, but quietly, there might have been a conservative minister threatening them with nationalization or at oh. least discussing it as a comment. And um, they sort of go, uh, let's put it this way for the conservative party to start threatening, so, uh, talking about nationalization. That is scary. But again, you know, it's, it's their reaction. It's plus taking all that money during during COVID uh, all, yeah. to keep the crews paid. And then all of a sudden you're firing them so you can bring in basically low cost EU, you know, minimum wage workers. Oh, no, it's not EU ones. No, 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 no. They're bringing them in from the contract. The company that's owns the contract is based in the EU, but they're not using EU uh, oh, yeah. sailors. In uh, Colombia. <clears throat> Columbia shipping out of Malta is doing it, so who knows where they're going to grab them from? Uh, the... I think it's uh, pop the the current pre premise is probably the Philippines. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you get some Ukrainian sailors looking for work, and you probably get some Martians too. Yeah, I, I mean, but then I, I mean, we hadn't even talked about again the, the the issue of what if what if there's a blockade against Russia? What if, you know, again, we've been talking about economic sanctions. What if this war goes on again? You know, mm. this war continues on for weeks, months at a time. I mean, we know that, that, that the concept of a quick war doesn't always happen. Every war in history is going to be over by Christmas. We just don't know what Christmas. And, uh, and yeah, yeah, this war so far, it, it, the thing has been quick. Uh, let's be honest. Uh, the thing about Maripol, um, uh, we don't like getting into this because, as I, I agree with Drac, we are mainly historians. I do current affairs stuff on that history, SimSec and PR things and things I've done in war studies, but I still prefer to be a historian looking at these historical things. And I know that's what Drac feels more comfortable with and etc. But if you just consider how long it's taken for Maripol to fall, and Maripol hasn't fallen yet, and in a way that was far closer to Russia and that was far easier to support, some of the cities which they have yet to get into and yet to get anywhere near close to are far bigger than Mariupol. And they have far bigger garrisons and they have far more civilians who've now had weeks of preparation thanks to the time this war's taken up. We, there was jokes at the beginning about them having had two days training. What they've now been doing, how many weeks of training? 
and they've been getting their positions ready because the whole time they're not thinking, oh, the Russians are days away. We don't need to do anything. No, they've been preparing the whole time. So the longer it takes to get to those cities, the harder they're going to get to take. This is not going to be a quick process. And no. I think in myself, I, again, for Russia with the block, with the informal blockade, they've got an informal air blockade because the airlines aren't flying there. And they've got an informal sea blockade because the ships or shipping companies won't go there. So it doesn't matter what they're producing. They're not going to be able to sell anything. And they're not going to be able to buy it either. Well, and, that, and that's where, again, you're seeing it. So the one thing I would argue just to differ on that is you do see food coming out. So if you look at like Novoresk in the Black Sea, you're still seeing fuel come out of there. But the, that's also because the pipeline there isn't just Russian. It's it's it, there's Kazakhstan, there's Armenia, there's other countries using that pipeline. But the food is still coming out of Russia right now. But again, there's got to be a big decision. Do you sanction food coming out of Russia? Because, again, that's going to cause food shortages in country areas of the world that you don't want to really create instability in. But at the same time, if you want to economically hurt Russia, you have to stop the shipment of key exports. And, and you know, what happens if NATO blockades the Turkish Straits? Not what allowing happens if you do it in a more clever way? If you offer those same places food at a reduced cost. That's that the other option. You but undermine that you, you cut the yeah. you, you, can you do it short term? Can you do it long term? What can you do? But it is an option if you don't want to declare it a proper blockade and cause uh, those issues. That is one of the options. You undercut them. You you have the slight problem there though of one, is there enough supply that you can actually afford to offer them alternatives? And two, the other thing, which is why I'm deeply cynical about most things when it comes to politicians. No. is uh, will they actually do it because it goes against the vested interests of both them and the people who give them lots of money for their campaign contributions? Because if you want, I mean, let's face it, Russian Russian food exports are bought by third world countries for a reason. They're pretty cheap compared to something you might get out of an EU country. So, you know, it would take a very courageous politician to turn around and say to his you know national farmers union or whatever say well you know we're going to buy up a bunch of uh, your product and but we either expect you to sell it to us for very very cheap so that we can undercut the russians so you won't make any money but it fulfills our political aims or are they going to buy it up at cost at regular cost from their own sources and then sell it at a loss to undercut Russia. Well, let's be honest, it'd probably be the latter option because that would not upset the, the, the donors. It, it won't upset the farmers, but it'll upset a lot of people who want, uh, want to make a profit on absolutely everything ever. Yeah, but, you know, nicest way, they'll then think about it as this way. Long term, they get rid of their Russian competitors because they go bankrupt. You're asking people to think in the long term? No. In a political it's only, sphere? It, it's not that long <laughs> commercial term. It's economic, commercial long term, it's about two years. They can think that far. And I say that I don't trust them to think four years ahead, two years they can just that, that is, of course, assume, as I say, assuming there even is surplus food to go around. Right. Because that's that's the other question we keep <coughs> keep coming back into <clears throat> is when you create such an interconnected globalized world, you know, Mark Levinson wrote this book <clears throat> out of the box where he talks about this idea that true globalization is achieved post. World War II, and thanks to technology from containerization to, to super tankers, mm -hmm. now, you know, the, the 
economies are so intertwined that any little disruption causes problems. But when you're in a position we're in today, where we've just had a myriad of problems associated with it from COVID, from Ever Given, from, from uh, ports in China shutting down because of zero policy tolerances. Now you add the Russia-Ukraine war, that's going to cause more disruptions in, in, in the entire chain. And, and again, it goes back to your issue that we were talking about, the fact that there's no written down international law really on, on, on this. And before anyone gets an idea that you want to actually write down this international law, no, no. just remember how, A, who would actually do the writing of it? B, how long would they take? And C, what version would you accept and in what language? Well, this is this is where you this is where you get to the fact that blockade is actually codified in international law. Except the only way to get that approved is via the UN Security Council, which basically means it never will be because it's always yeah. going to be against one of the five security member permanent members' which interests. Means they're not doing a blockade; they're calling it something else. It's just mm. a blockade by a different name. Well, I, I mean, look at because look at, again, this is the problem when you codify it. You suddenly have to give it. You just, all you do is give it a different name. Well, and that's exactly what they did against Iraq from 1990 mm -hmm. till 2003 maritime interdiction operations. I did mm -hmm. them, you know, it's, it's, you know, you do these interdiction ops, not a blockade, it's interdiction, unless you find what's in violation of the interdiction, then, then it's a blockade, mm -hmm. because then you're turning those ships around and doing it. But that involved huge amounts of numbers of ships and manpower and troops and sailors and it was a lot. But it wasn't a blockade. It, <clears throat> Sal, it wasn't a blockade. It was maritime interdiction duty. Right. It was maritime interdiction duty. But can be clear, too, maritime interdiction duty is tough against Russia. I mean, we see mm. that because of because of the, you know, the, the, the flip side of Russia's poor geography and, and ocean front makes it a very difficult one to blockade, too, because there's so many different routes to, to blockade in. And that becomes a big well, problem. Well, let's be honest, the Japanese are always having very good at blockading uh, Pacific Russia. So we'll let mm. them have that well, job. I mean, they do have a tradition and experience of it. Um, but let's see the Black Sea. Well, traditionally, it was the Ottomans, but I suppose the Turks have inherited the Ottomans. So we'll let them have that go. Uh, the Baltic states. Well, Sweden was always the best at blockading <laughs> Russia whenever they got really annoying. And well, for the North Atlantic, I suppose the British and Canadians and Americans will have to try and step up to the task. Well, the, the, but, the, but the one thing I think we do have to bear in mind in all of this is that it's all very well to discuss it on a geostrategic level. But you've also got to bear in mind that, I mean, obviously the people who are bearing the brunt of all of this are the people in Ukraine. Yeah. But you, when you start talking about blockades of especially things like food, you have to start thinking about how is this people. going well not just the russian people but ourselves mm. you know i i now cannot actually fill my tank on my car unless with the automated petrol stations because the automated petrol stations have a 99 pound spending limit if i drain the tank of my car and i'm running on fumes the price of diesel has now gone up to the point that a full tank will cost more than 99 pounds now, luckily, I can afford to fill my tank, even if the system won't let me. So I have to either, you know, I have to go and find a, a place that has an actual manned booth, but the manned, manned booths are, cost more money. So you end up having to fill a, a tank, a, an empty tank, and it's not exactly like a massive car, um, but to fill uh, an empty... Yeah. And to, to, fill, yeah to fill an empty tank, it's, it will cost you more a lot more now than it used to even a few weeks ago. Now, as I say, for someone like myself, it's annoying, 
and I might cut down the driving slightly, but I'm, it's not a make or break. But there's a lot of people in the UK for whom the fuel price is going up by what, probably 30, 40, 50%, depending on where you are in the UK, is a major problem. And if you I fact- have to spend 75 quid to do three quarters of a tank yesterday, mm. and, if and I mind petrol. Yeah, and and petrols for reference to those of you who aren't aware, petrols about fifteen p a litre cheaper than diesel at the moment. Um, now, if you factor that into food, again, there's a lot of people in the UK who are scraping by for food, and there's a lot of people outside of the major cities in the UK where their heating is supplied by fuel oil rather than by gas. Not done. I mean, gas prices have gone up anyway, so. You know, what, what do you what do you need? What are your basic elements for basic civil society? You need food, you need fuel for heating and transport, and you need shelter. Well, you know, the government's already in at least in the UK has put uh, already putting up national in- income contrib- national in- insurance contributions, so there'll be less money going home in your pay packet, mm-hmm. uh, which means less money to pay for your rent. The fuel prices have gone through the roof, so and gas prices have gone through the roof. So you're going to be paying through the nose to try and keep your home warm. You're going to be paying through the nose to try and get to work to earn any money at all. Because, and if you think that's you know, the solution is to take public transport, well, guess what? Buses and trains use electricity, which comes from power stations, or they run on fuel, which you know is also their price is going, is going their, their price is going up as well. Uh, and no ideologues in various local authorities I've worked for, not everybody can cycle to work. Some people f- happen to work 15, 20, 60 miles from home. So that's not an option all the time, especially if it's driving rain. And if all the food prices go up as well, because the politicians have decided they want to hurt Russia by blockading Russian food exports. Well, now you have a lot of people in your own country, and I'm sure this applies equally to the US or any other first world country. There'll be an awful lot of people who are just struggling to make ends meet, and you've now hit them with a trifecta in all three major areas where they're struggling to get by. The politicians don't care because the politicians are on 80, 100, 300 grand a year, plus all the sinecure positions they're getting from various directorships of various companies that they honestly didn't help out, Governor. Um, so they couldn't, they couldn't care two hoots about the increased price of fuel or, or food or whatever. You know, they're already eating probably illegally imported Russian caviar and so forth. So it doesn't matter to them, but it does matter to the general population. And there's only yeah. so there's only so much you can this is the problem as Sal was pointing out with the global interconnected system. Yeah. There's only so much you can hurt someone before you start hurting yourself. And you know, as much as people might like to fantasize about, you know, an uprising in Russia toppling Putin, well, one, you've got no guarantee that the people who come to power after him are going to be any better. <laughs> They're probably mm-hmm. going to be worse. Um, that is my... actually tends to be what happens, because let's be honest, you're presuming the people who come to power are going to be from a democratic side. In the nicest way, the democratic side don't tend to have the guns. That's not what happened last time there was a revolution in Russia in the 90s. <laughs> oh. um, so, you know, it. do you, do you want to possibly end up partially destabilizing your own country it, and again that you're exactly right i mean in many ways the 
blockade slash sanctions have that blowback effect mm. on on yourself, and, and that's what we're seeing right now. I, I'm we're seeing that. Do it. I mean, diesel. I I, I loathe for you guys right now because mm. diesel prices in Europe are going to get terrible, and they're just going to mm-hmm. get worse because of the inability to get that heavier oil in for the refineries, which Russia was providing. I mean, that's what we get. I mean, in the oil we import from Russia is for our heavy diesel, uh, uh, basically, refineries, mm. because their oil is perfect for that. I mean, but it also goes to this issue of, of the sanctions in general. You know, I looked at the UK when they issued their sanctions against Russian shipping. And, and, and even that's a tough one, too, because what what denotes a Russian ship? or is it? Well, it's registered in Russia. That's easy. That's a quick one to find out. But is it ownership? Is it is it interest in it? Is it the cargo? You know, what, what is it? You know, because, you know, if, if you're talking about a tanker which has Russian fuel, OK, have you tracked that fuel? I mean, there's some great guys out there to do that. They track mm-hmm. fuel. But the ownership is the hard part. I, I mean, there's Russian money everywhere in the tanker industry. I mean, it, it's, it, it's you can't swing, you know swing a cat without hitting, mm. you know, Russian money in the tanker industry. So are you going to start banning every tanker coming in to you? It, it's mm. this concept of, of economic and, and blockade, you know, it worked great in the civil war when, okay, we're going to blockade the Confederacy and we're going to cut off cotton production, you know, because cotton's going to fund the civil war, the Confederate economy. And that, that works great. And, you know, and the, the Confederate mindset is, well, this will force Britain to come to war because they got to intercede because they need our cotton for the mills. What are they, they going to do without Southern cotton? And we found out they got Egyptian cotton. They got Indian cotton. You know, there was other <laughs> there, there, there were other materials out there for them to do it. But today, substituting is tough because consumption is so high. You know, it, it, if you lose just a few percentage of of goods out of out of your economy, it has just disproportionate impact mm-hmm. right now. And, and, and that's what we saw. We saw that with Evergiven going sideways in the Suez, when all of a sudden mm-hmm. for six days, the world's economy all of a sudden just kind of held its breath. And, what I and- have to say, I, I find annoying with all this, is that we've had Evergiven, we've had all these things. We've. It, it's not like we haven't seen this coming. And I know this is often, the, the, this is the old thing that me and Drac all, all seem to take in turns to repeat. Histor- those who study history are doomed to watch those uh, those who don't repeat its mistakes. <clears throat> um, it, you know, as as this sort of thing and the variations of that. And the point is, we all saw that this was is a potential. Surely, and I know this is me asking for too much. I know, and I know this is going to start off another rant from Drac, but I'm just going to say this. What kind of moron do you have to be in a leadership position of a major country who hasn't got a looked at after things have ever given, etc., and gone, you know what, we should make sure we have a strategic reserve of fuel, we should make sure we have a strategic reserve of these key necessities, so if their prices go up or anything, so we can release something to lower the price. We can steady the price. We can maintain ourselves so we are not immediately impacted, so we can delay the impact and reduce the cost. Because and, that would require the political class to give a damn about any one of the rest of us, which is not going to happen until their heads are on spikes. <laughs> and even then, they'll probably be complaining that they're not eco-friendly spikes from Harrods. Well, and it's very, very, very offensive that you've hung the hung the head of uh, the honourable member for the 14th century off of an IKEA spike, you know? Well, here is the thing. A few years ago in the UK, and this is completely off topic, but this is something Sal will appreciate. We had a policy where it was, there was actually some funding available for solar panels we put on houses. Mm-hmm. Admittedly, you had to put up the money first, and then the government gave you the money back. 
So it was very much orientated towards the upper middle class who had the spare, uh, spare cash to do it and uh, things else. But I always felt that was a policy which should have been A, expanded to include grants for people who didn't have the money up front. And I thought it was very sensible because the more houses that had solar panels, the better they, it was for the UK's energy supplies and all those things. It got discontinued as part of the basically the various cuts in 2010, when you'd think it would be a sensible thing to encourage and keep going. And at the time I did argue that it's the cases Britain's, uh, you know, you have solar power, or you, solar power, you have wind power, you have all these things. You, you can't go for complete energy self-sufficiency based off these at the current technology levels. You've got, if you've got nuclear power, if you've got hydroelectric power, that covers it a, a, a long way to making it self-sufficient. We haven't pushed it. Even, you know, we consider Germany. Germany decided because of a tidal wave and a earthquake in Japan, which fractured one of their nuclear reactors and did cause some issues, to get rid of nuclear power in Germany because it's suddenly very highly dangerous. I'm not quite sure which... Uh, which G- Germany, obviously, they're very well known for its tsunamis. Yes, and its earthquakes. It then made itself completely dependent upon Russian gas, which is and Russian energy supplies, mm. which is why they're in currently in the scenario they are, and why in Crimea, they basically stopped the sanctions after four months after Crimea was invaded and taken over, because Germany didn't want to lose out on the energy supplies, because they can't afford The... People well, like I, to think sometimes it's our current politicians who are the problem. It's been our current politicians for about the last 30 years. I'll tell you the, the one of the reasons, uh, incidentally, which I mean, it has a bearing on all of this, why um, a lot of the solar stuff was discontinued in the UK. It's because the government um, and the uh, private energy companies engaged in a very long-term staring match over who was going to fund the upgrades for the electricity infrastructure because uh, through my work at various local authorities i know that quite a number of local authority areas actually had to curtail the solar panel grants early because the grid was at full capacity and if ten thousand more homes stuck solar panels on their roofs in say somewhere like croydon and you get an lovely sunny day like it is today the amount of electricity being dumped into the grid would be too high and everything would short out and then everybody would be panicking. Now, the obvious solution to that is, why don't we put some extra cabling in? But then, of course, everyone sits there and goes, who's going to pay for it? The energy companies go, no, no, the government should pay for it. They're the ones who are coming up with all this grant stuff. And never mind the fact we're basically getting, for the price they pay householders, free electricity to use and sell a massive markup. Never mind that. No, we want everything for profit and, and, and free. And the government's sitting there and basically going, no, you're going to benefit massively from this because you can buy electricity at 3p a unit off of people and sell it back to them for 25p or 30p a unit at the night at nighttime. So you should pay for it. And neither side paid for it. So the electricity grid isn't doesn't have any further capacity for it. Um, but, you know, that that's short termism again. But the 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 wider point, which I think all of this has a rather disturbing implication for is million miles, well, not million miles, about 5,000 miles away from the Black Sea, which is China and Taiwan. Because at the moment, the West finds itself in a catch-22. Because the, the, the current lesson for China when it comes to Taiwan is if we want to invade a third party 
and they're near our borders, and we're a nuclear-armed power, the West won't do anything about it because they don't want to get involved in a nuclear-armed conflict with someone then with a with a nuclear power if we don't have direct allies alliance with them, and we don't currently have any kind of direct military alliance with Taiwan. You know, Taiwan is the Ukraine to, you know, Ukraine has the same relationship with Russia as Taiwan does with China. Both both the larger countries kind of want it. They don't want it in the Western sphere of influence. Those smaller nations aren't aligned with the West formally. So China's looking at it this, and I can guarantee you in the halls of Beijing, they're going, right, well, if we invade Taiwan, this is currently proved positive. The West will do nothing to stop us militarily. They will try and sanction us, probably, because they'll think that's a good idea, which is what they've done to Russia. But, you know, given all the impacts that we've just covered that are happening to people in the West as a result of sanctions on Russia, and Russia, bar the gas, wasn't exactly massively integrated into the Western economy. What happens if you try and sanction China, given how much China is tied in, is tied into the global economy? And let's be honest, the Taiwan's commitment to the global economy is quite a lot of the superconductors and mm -hmm. quite a lot of micro microprocessors. In fact, the vast majority of the microprocessor systems come from Taiwan. Uh, do and do you, want to do you want to risk them being blown up in a prolonged... This is another catch-22 yeah. for the West. Do you want to risk all of that being blown to pieces in a prolonged conflict? Or, or do you want I to see them fall quickly and easily and supply be resumed? But that's I will add a point which I tend to make whenever the talk of Taiwan comes up. In about the 1970s, 1980s, Israel, South Africa, and Taiwan were involved in a secret program developing nuclear weapons. We're not, it's unconfirmed whether Israel developed them, but we are all fairly certain, despite the best efforts of the KGB and the CIA to break it up. South Africa, we know, did build six weapons. And people like to believe that Taiwan, which is the most new and populous of the three, has the largest technological base. And of course, it's sitting right next door to China, which keeps wanting to invade it and is massive, didn't. Um, I'm sorry, I have my suspicions based on the other two options that it, you're kind of claimed that the one which had the most reason to develop it out of three was the one which failed, would seem to me to be slightly, slightly strange. It might not have, I, I don't know if it does or doesn't. I'd just say I wouldn't be too, I would be quite careful on that front if I was China. I, I got to say, I, I saw quite a few people post, you know, what, and, and people I respect in, in, in maritime and, and, and business related news outlets talking about, well, you know, if, if you know, when, when they were talking about the deal between China and Russia providing uh, China, providing arms to Russia, well, if China does that, they'll, 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 they will hate the day they did that. I don't know. It's like, I think this hurts us more. We sanctioned China. I, yeah. I think like, the impact that everything Drac just said about what's mm -hmm. happening with fuel prices and everything in England as a result of Russia is magnified a gazillion times for, for what we do to China. And I got to say, if I'm China, I'm sitting there looking at, man, I could blockade Taiwan and have a great old day. Mm. And, and I'm not going to get any response from from the West. I, I mean, you know, China doesn't have to land their forces on Taiwan. I, I mean, that's what they, I mean, that's to be they, honest, they, the actual blockading Taiwan and the, what would have to by the necessity blockade the Taiwanese Straits while doing it. The disruption of causing all that shipping to go round Taiwan and go to the Pacific side of Taiwan rather than through the Straits would probably cause such a 
big knock-on effect throughout the Western's economy, mm. it would be massive because that would add on days onto the transport of things. Well, and not only that, you would take ships. I mean, so what, what, what's the result here? Do we do we do we boycott uh, Chinese ships? Costco is the fourth largest shipping line and or the third largest shipping line now in the world. Mm. You know, do you boycott them? What happens to all the Taiwanese shipping lines? Evergreen is is a classic. You know, Evergreen's is is Taiwanese company. You know, do they become a target for the Chinese? What, what happens now? I mean, the ship that's stuck here in the United States is, is is Taiwanese. You know, it's evergreen, but it's Hong Kong flagged. You know, and and I would argue that Taiwan is integrating more and more with China. Anyway, I I don't think China was going to do this anyway with Taiwan mm. because of the integration is happening very similar to what happened with Hong Kong. But if they should decide to do a a, a blockade or uh, of some kind, I, I think that's what the Chinese Navy is designed to do. I, I mean, again, I, I, I watch the U.S. Navy all the time talk about the Chinese Navy, the plan, and they keep talking about, well, they're not going to be able to go peer to peer. They're not coming across the Pacific. You know, they're, they're not doing, you know, the Battle of the Philippine mm. Sea. That's not what they're planning on doing. They're planning on how, how do we get control around Taiwan? And, and mm. I think they could do it very effectively, very quickly. And when, when, when you look back through history, um, look at the Napoleonic Wars, you know, Napoleon tried to do the Europe, the continental system to cut off Britain from the world economy. Turns out Britain and the non-European part of the world, but thanks to the industrial starts of the Industrial Revolution, mostly Britain, actually had more of the world economy than Europe right. did. At which point Britain was just like, okay, that's fine. We'll also blockade you and we'll see who's who goes bankrupt first. It turns out it was Europe. Um and World War One as well. Um World War Two had some effect. So there were some effects towards the end of it as well. But World War One, especially, the British blockade of Germany, led to huge shortages of all sorts of things. Everything from strategic materials for weapons making down to basic foodstuffs in Germany. And a which large had, chunk of the blockade was Britain buying everything. From which else. and it had a huge knock-on effect on Germany's ability to continue fighting World War One. Um, so you know, whilst obviously in both those cases there was ongoing military operations the blockade and the cutoff of access to the global economy was a huge factor in the overall outcome of the war now as sal just pointed out you know if, if china decides to either blockade taiwan or if they decide if somebody decides ah yes we're going to sanction china china all not quite but almost is the world economy you know, China and the U.S. are the two biggest. You know, if, if if you put them, if you put everyone on a a podium that's proportional to their global GDP output, there's kind of the U.S. and China competing for you know which particular cloud layer up in the stratosphere that they occupy, and everybody else like maybe maxing out at five foot above ground level, <laughs> relatively speaking. So if if China decides to do something. I mean, to be honest, it doesn't even have to involve Taiwan. It could even just be China turning around and going, we see an opportunity to make a lot of money. We're going to trade weapons, food, electronics, all this other stuff you're, you're sanctioning Russia for. We're just going to trade with Russia on our land border. What are you going to do about it? You're well, going to sanction going China? To more railways to start us. Yeah, but no, but what, so what's the West <laughs> going to do about it if they do? You know, we, yeah. we had last week um, President Biden threatening China with consequences. I can bet you in the halls of Beijing, they were laughing their heads off going, what consequences? What are you going to do about it? <laughs> anything, anything the West does to sanction China economically, China can repay tenfold. Yep. And, and 
there is literally nothing you can do about it because China China can do an equivalent of the Napoleonic blockade of Europe or the World War One distant blockade without actually moving a single naval vessel. They just don't ship to the people they don't like. I, I've been convinced for a long time that, that China has looked at what happened in the 1930s and 1940s to both itself and Japan. And, and, you know, that's where their strategy is. I mean, you look at what China was on the eve of, of the larger breakout of the war in the Pacific in 1941. You know, China was isolated. The J- Japanese had, had basically, you know, done everything they could to cut China off from the outside world. I mean, they'd taken French and no China. They'd shut the Burma Road. They, they had basically isolated China to the point when it was cut off. And because China was such a rural country at the time, it didn't really stop them from fighting. But at the same time, when U.S. and Britain and, and Netherlands sanctioned Japan in, in the summer of 1941, that has massive implications for Japan. It really pushed, puts them in the corner. They've got to do something at that point. They'd already decided for war. But the question is, what was that war going to be? And and, and when was it going to be? And, and the, the economic sanctions, when all of a sudden Japan was cut off from gas, they were cut off from steel, their banking was shut off. You know, that put him in the corner. I posted not too long ago something about that. It's like, be careful putting China, Russia in the corner here, because mm. if you sanction them too much, you're going to put them in a position where they're going to have to react in one way. And military Twitter, as usual, handle itself mm-hmm. in such a great way. You know, I was, mm-hmm. I was I was told I need to go study history, which I always found a very interesting comment when I get that. Yes, yeah, so let's so. go study history. Let's look at what Iran did when you maintained infinite sanctions against them. Didn't change their regime, just learned how to home build parts for F-14 Tomcats. Right. What happened? It's like the eternal sanctions on Cuba. What did? did yeah. What happened? What, what happened to the guys? That just that, needs more time. Drag. Yeah. We're just we're just a little bit more time. I, I mean, mean, it's just the it's El Castro years. Like the entire Castro clan has now either died of old age or retired. That's the plan. So yeah, I mean, I, okay, Putin's a little bit older than Castro was at the time the blockades were enacted on Cuba, but so far, um, history does not seem to suggest that sanctions lead to either regime change or indeed much of anything bad happening to the people you ostensibly want out of power except drive them into the hands of other people um and the the old thing the only way you can deliver these things is if you put some troops in the ground unfortunately Mm. and and that comes back to what we said right at the beginning of the uh whole ukraine situation are you are you willing to pay the price for the talk that you want to enact because the the as as Sal pointed out the big danger here if you push russia too hard because i mean there's two things one the west has a really bad habit of keeping sanctions on places long after even if even if the country's given in you know and said yeah we'll do what you say the west still keeps the sanctions on for some reason and then you have the absolutely terrible thing with the iranian nuclear deal of you know there's a deal Let's lift the sanctions. Okay, everyone's theoretically cooperating. And now we're going to tear it up for arbitrary reasons. Again, that doesn't really give... Once the West puts sanctions on, there's no real reason for anyone else who's having sanctions applied to them to believe they're ever going to be lifted. So why make any concession to get them lifted when you know it's not going to happen in the, anyway? And even if it does well, happen, the fair, next election cycle... History, the, the, they, the, 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 they have a lifted... The, the Germans have lifted sanctions quite regularly on Germany. Yeah, but the, the, I'm talking about the supplies. big ones, the big ones that actually matter. You know, the, 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 those nations, they don't lift the sanctions, and if even if they do the next election cycle, they'll be back for arbitrary reasons. So at that point, you know, the West looks like an unreasonable actor, so why bother accommodating them at all? But if you've got 
a big economic block right next door, like China, who will be quite happy to trade with you. Well, you basically, ironically enough, kind of a twist turnaround on events from 50, 60 years ago, you back Russia into China's corner. Um, and that's that's the economic. I mean, again, the blockade that Russia is doing against hmm. Ukraine. I mean, that's part of an overall military strategy, a political mm-hmm. strategy that they've implemented. It's not just pure sanctions. And I think that's the other element, too, is, is Russia is doing this in coordination with their military operation. And it's hmm. having an effect on, I think, a, a very big effect on Ukraine in many ways. Hmm. Whereas if we just do economic sanctions like we're doing now, there are alternatives around it. There are ways around it. I mean, again, you know. Hmm. China has developed this huge, massive railway system over to Europe that's not being used right now because it mm-hmm. goes through Russia. But the question is, are they trading with Russia? And we would never know it because we're, yeah. we just we don't know what's going to be on those trains unless, uh, mm-hmm. again, we're, we're, we're monitoring them all the time with our satellites, which we are probably. Yeah. But then at that point, you know, again, what are you going to do about it? What yeah, what it's... what can you do about it? Uh, and, and the big risk sort of looping back to naval and military matters, the, the biggest risk at least from my from where i stand is that china is innovative china has been developing new weapons and technology and everything but let's face it there are some areas where china is a little bit behind the west on unfortunately a lot of those areas happen to marry up very very closely with areas that russia's relatively strong on russia doesn't have huge amounts of money especially now. So they haven't been able to manufacture vast amounts of it, but they have come up with things like the Sukhoi 57. Yes, you can make arguments about whether or not the stealth is as good as an F-22 or an F-35, but it is a stealth aircraft. It's probably better than most of the stuff that China's got in development and certainly better than the stuff they've got in service. Um, Russia has hypersonic weapons. They've got... um, several different types of it, anti-shipping missiles, air-launched missiles, etc. Russia has a lot, I mean, the, for all the fact that they the engines on half of them don't apparently work properly, but the T-14 Armata tank and its family of armoured vehicles look quite interesting. Though the big advantage that the West has in, with regards to all of that is the fact that Russia's only been able to produce them in slight penny packets. But what happens if China, which does have the manufacturing capacity and does have the money, turns around to Russia and says, well, we will help you break the Western sanctions. We will trade with you openly. And in exchange, blueprints of the SU-57, blueprints of um, the T-14, blueprints of uh, what's the um, the hypersonic Russian missile? Uh, Zircon? Zircon, that's it. Yeah, blueprints of Zircon, please. You know, all, all, all those wonderful fancy bits and pieces of technology that no one's worried about the Russians having because they only have six of them. And now China's like, oh, we got all the blueprints. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, high, high, high functioning jet engines. You know, the stuff that runs all the various Sukhoi models, etc. And then yeah, now China has all those blueprints in exchange for basic trade goods. And now they can innovate on those and or produce them in huge numbers. And now what are you going to do? Because now China is on a technological part and has huge numbers. This is not a good situation to be in. But, um, yeah. <laughs> Some Again, long-term thinking. I mean, to be honest, that's not even particularly long-term. That's like a year or two down the line. But 
apparently not considered. Well, that's to be honest, it's a year or two down the line for them to sell it. Then it's a year or two for them to set up, the, to do some reverse engineering, set up the factories, uh, probably start testing up. So it's about four years down the line, they suddenly have them in mass numbers. And that's why the politicians haven't thought about it, because that's more than one election cycle away. So when it happens, they can blame the other guy. Well, that's the thing. I mean, again... And the know, point we, is, we, uh, when, when was the... We, we, this is just going to sound terrible, and probably Sal's going to hate me for saying this, but um, Drac, a few years ago, you and I, well, not a few years ago, it feels like a long time ago, but it was during COVID, you and I were chatting about when we thought was the most dangerous point to be Taiwan. And I think we came up with roughly 2026 to 2030. Late, yeah, late 2020s. Yeah, and Russia and China suddenly having all the new weapons by uh, in 2026. Oh, I would not want to be Taiwan. Mm. And they can buy their time. This is the point. <clears throat> Some of our listeners might think we're saying that China's going to do this immediately after watching what Russia and uh, what's going on with Ukraine. No. For them, waiting four years, four or five years while they build up the resources, that's not going to bother them at all. That's going to strengthen their position and weaken ours. Because they're building a lot of equipment in four or five years. What are we building? What infrastructure are we doing? You know, mine and Sal's favorite thing to rant about, the level of infrastructure construction and the level of infrastructure quality. Drag also likes to get on this, but I think he, he hasn't quite reached the level of vein throbbing out of his head that me and Sal can perfect on this subject of the quality of infrastructure and the investment of infrastructure in the West has just died since World War II, pretty much. Oh, we uh, I've been talking about this. We got to container ships stuck outside the port of baltimore and we just sent out two dredges to start dredging out you know when when ever given got stuck in the suez they had a high capacity dredge that basically vacuumed the bottom out from underneath that vessel we're, we're out there with these two kind of clamshell dredgers scooping mud out a bucket at a time and we should be doing that for the next 10 years probably to get this thing out i mean it's not gonna take that long but still it's it's, it's just it's, it's we haven't kept up on it and you haven't kept up on on on, on the infrastructure it's basically, we've got a dredger. Yes, it's about 60 years old and it's where it's about four different generations of technology ago. But we've got one. Um, yep. Oh, we haven't got a fireboat anymore because we don't need them. Oh, <laughs> don't get, don't oh get me so, yeah. Don't get me going. You and I, we're not going to get a start on the fireboats again. Do you know don't what's so interesting? It's the Port of London Authority has more fireboats in central London than actually, you know, they do at the port. I got, I got a video in the can where I'm trying to not get the entire Navy angry at me for what I'm about to say based on their report on the Bonham Richard fire. And it's just it's just it, it, it's it, it, it's comical, if not dangerous. So I've been working on that since our broadcast we did back on whichever Bill's pumps that was. And I just if you'd, I like, keep... a, if you'd like a guest on to share the blame of them being Ugh. upset, please just I'm happy to be there and complain about fireboats. You need them. Ugh. Get me going. I know. We've, I think we've managed to make... I, we've always sent Drac into a depression spiral or he's just doing research before he starts shouting about something else. No, it's... Uh, I, think he, I think he's plotting where Waffle Houses are in America. So he has his uh, food uh, trip set up and everything. He knows where to strategically stop at Waffle House and Cracker Barrel here in the South. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
well, now you've mentioned that such a thing as a Waffle House exists. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you have not experienced Waffle House yet, that's the video I want to hear about afterwards. After you visit oh. the Waffle House in the South. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, currently we're hunting barbecue joints for the Canada. For when do we do that one? I mean, it's that I do. I do find it slightly depressing, but also slight on a slightly self-congratulatory level slightly edifying that apart from the uh, slightly unexpected stalling out of the Russian offensive, we pretty much predicted most of what was going to happen before it happened, which came as a great shock to a lot of other people, which I'm very surprised by because much as it sounds like repeating a point, it's not exactly like history didn't tell us this was going to happen in this way. So, you know, we'll see what happens now. Mm. I agree. It's going to be, mm. it, it's, it's this involvement of what happens here. I, I'm really going to be interested in, in seeing with the blockade going on right now in the Black Sea, if the mines start getting loose, what, what's the response to that? What happens if we start seeing ships in international waters or coastal waters of Bulgaria and Romania start hitting these things. Does NATO send the mine sweeping group in, which I think is, is mm. at the very least probably something that probably needs to be considered uh, going in to ensure safe water operations. Is there a humanitarian operation to move refugees out of Mariupol or, or out of Odessa and, and, and Kyrgyzstan later on, you know, what's, what's that choice going to be? And do the Russians oppose that? which I think they would. And then I think they're, they're not going to let anybody in. So I don't know. I don't know where this goes, but it's going to be interesting to see. And I think we go back to that issue about that implication of blockades in the future. What if China blockades Taiwan? What if they blockade just key strategic areas? You know, would, how do we react against that? Cause, cause right now, again, I think the major player in, in 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 economic sanctions against russia right now is is in some ways commercial firms they seem to have more power over what happens than in some cases uh government you know it's one thing to sit there and say we're not going to import russian oil but russian oil is going to go someplace else then you know mm. they, they will sell it someplace else yeah although uh, the the flip side to that is that um some of this some of the uh, commercial refusal to do business is running into the rather harsh reality of he who has the guns commands the orders. Because, um, yeah, if you want to know what's happened to all the McDonald's that got shut down, they've now become Uncle Vanya's. <laughs> and, I saw, uh, the, uh, so, yeah. I saw the, uh, the, uh, the logo for it. It was really yeah. interesting. Uh, uh, I, I, I love the way on, on, on social media people going, oh, well, you know, the, the McDonald's has a case to pursue for intellectual property theft and and actual property theft and so and so on and so forth. That I think they're going, yeah. And where they're going to file those applications? Russian courts. Good luck. There are there uh, are easier ways of wasting money. To be perfectly honest, hard liquor oh. being one of them. <laughs> um, I would add something else, and this is something to elaborate on a point we mentioned earlier. Uh, the amount of people who think replacing Putin is automatically going to put someone better in there. It won't. You are not dealing with just Putin. I know people like to say Putin is all the bad people and everything, but you are dealing with generations below him and beyond him who've been raised on various forms of Russian propaganda that has been steeped into them. 
by the various people who interest who wanted it that way. And the trouble is the people who come next have been raised in that worldview. And we all sort of all the product to extent of our own worldview and our own our own national propagandas, we are all affected by that. Do not think that a next generation of Russian leader is going to automatically be nicer, westernized, going to agree with you on your green and economic policy and your view of the world. Don't think that. Right then. I think that's a, a wrap because we have actually got on for, well, poor Sal was up at uh, uh, 6 a.m. and it's now almost 8 a.m. for him. The sun so, has risen. <laughs> yes. Sun, the sun has risen. And he and has I have to, to go and teach a class after already having two hours of yabbering away of us. Oh, this is this is perfect. This gets me all set up and everything like that. So we're all good. I'm just talking about something not controversial: the end of World War One and the Treaty of Versailles. Yeah, because of course oh, that, that that ended really well. Oh yeah, the <laughs> hey, point point one of, of of Wilson's fourteen points: freedom of the seas. So we're going to be talking mm-hmm. about that. So oh, oh, we'll, let's we'll be set. honest: it, uh, a Treaty of Versailles and the Washington Treaty, the two treaties which guaranteed there'd be World War Two. There you go. My right. question to my one of my questions to my students is going to be: Is does does uh, uh, does the Treaty of Versailles uh, uh, create a stable, lasting peace? <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. Thanks does it for twenty years? Does it? Does it really? No, is it doesn't. No, 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 really, no. It doesn't. I don't want to give away the answer, but I get my, my students may listen to this, so I can't. I can't give the Last answer. Lasts about five minutes. And a good one, a couple of Wednesdays. Doesn't even last five minutes. I mean, war is raging in Eastern Europe the whole time, and war is raging like... inside Germany most of the time, <laughs> and, oh, well. and in the Black Sea, and in the Black yeah. Sea too. Yes. Well. All, All right. right. Thank you very much, Sal. Thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Hope you enjoyed, and thank you, Drac, as ever. Mm-hmm. And hope you get well soon, Jamie. See you next Pleasure, week. Thank you. Bye. Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout 